I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Helen. Okay. Hi, my name is Helen. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Helen. I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1976. Long time. Um, I've probably been a compulsive overeater since I was born, but I, you know, I can remember um, it really manifesting itself when I was about eight. And when I came in here, you know, you just hear a few snippets at your first meeting. It's kind of the whole concept is so overwhelming. One of the things I really remember hearing was that I was bodily and mentally different from my fellows. And uh, it didn't take long to convince me of that, even though I was very young when I came in. I had already lost uh, and gained back 100 pounds by the time I was 21. Um, I lost 100 pounds in Weight Watchers uh, when I was in high school. And when I was in college, put the whole 100 back on. And so, um, you know, I heard a lot of things that, you know, probably most of us have um, heard a lot of, you know, why are you this way? And, and I just uh, really didn't know. I remember one time my mom said, when are you going to stop eating? <laughs> when? Are you trying to kill yourself? Because you're going to. And I remember thinking, I don't even know why I'm doing this. You know, I um, have shared about my first binge. You know, you really don't start binging until you start dieting. I think, <laughs> you know, I think uh, the dieting is what trips off a lot of that mental obsession, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it flips uh, both ways for myself and a lot of other people. Um, for me, it went between two extremes. Either I had control of the food or a switch flipped and then the food had control of me. But there was never a middle ground where I turned it over and let God control it or my life. You know, um, I saw that documentary that was called An Inconvenient Truth. And the thing that he said in there really made me think of my eating disorder, even though it had nothing to do with eating disorders. It said, we vacillate between two extremes, and those extremes are denial and despair. And, I, you know, when I heard it, I got chills. And I thought, that pretty much sums up my inconvenient truth. My inconvenient truth, and it's very inconvenient having this disease. Um, really, I mean, it, there's just no... Uh, there's just no easier, softer way, because to live in the disease is a living hell. And to work this program is very inconvenient. There's a lot of phone calls, a lot of traveling, a lot of meetings, a lot of writing. Um, it just never ends. It just goes on and on. And unlike most things which you could muster, I mean, for those of you who have ever had a sport or had a job that takes, uh, you know, a little maneuvering at first and then, you know, like skiing, then you're swishing down the slopes and you're not even thinking about it. You're just one with the whole thing. Compulsive overeating in the program never goes like that. There's never a time where you're sitting back and going, I'm right in the pocket. It's, it's working. I'm flowing. I'm not putting out much effort. The effort today is exactly what it was 30 years ago. There's no kicking back. There's no, okay, now I've got this. That never happens. It's, and everything else, every job I've ever had, every sport, I mean, it's like that you get to this point where you can 
rest and feel quite smug about yourself. <laughs> you know, and I've had two different careers. You know, I was, um, I'm an RN. I still, I still am a nurse. But, um, you know, I worked at the bedside for many years and then um, I taught, you know, and, you know, went and got the teaching credential and all that thing. And the first couple of years are really tough and, you know, you're up every night doing your lesson plans. Next thing you know, you're just kicking back and, you don't even need those notes anymore. You're just talking and it's flowing and you're engaging. I have never found that place with this program. What I have found, you know, in a lot of my, um, a lot of my writing, uh, particularly on my mother, and this is what I'll say about her, is she was not a soft place to land. <laughs> <laughs> And most of my life has, that's the truth, and I've sponsored a lot of people like myself, and I've told them that about their mothers, and they go, that's right, she's not, you know, and uh, and uh, a lot of us are still looking for that soft place to land, and this is the one place where I think I've found it. I have found a soft place to land, and yeah. You know, I've had many different sponsors, and I am one that thinks it doesn't really matter who sponsors me, or even what they say, for that matter, because your sponsors are as messed up as you are, you know, real, truly. Um, but I've never had one say the wrong thing. They always say the perfect thing. But um, I have to call, <laughs> you know. And that's when sponsors really work best, is when I do call, <laughs> you know. That's when they're really working um, best. But um, anyway, um, you know, back to the whole horror of, you know, being a teenager. Um, you know, the daughter that's 12, just watching her with the Halloween candy. I don't know if any of you have normal kids. I, I just think this is something you're born with. Can you imagine a sack of Halloween candy lasting an entire year and then having to throw it out? Bizarre. You know, I guess she didn't get that whole genetic thing. You know, uh, I don't know. It just, uh, but anyway, it's interesting. You know, she went to her first school dance. She's 12. And uh, my husband and I drove her there and picked her up. And I said, do you know I never went to one school dance? Not even one. That my whole life, uh, you know, in junior high and high school was spent hiding so people would notice me as huge as I was. I was really invisible because I hid behind the school and I hid in the libraries and um, in the bathrooms, even though I didn't smoke. You know, everybody, the bathrooms are so smoke-filled. And um, I didn't have my first date until I was out of college. And, um, you know, this uh, disease of compulsive overeating when you're young takes away so much from you. And then as you age, it's no good either because you start to develop all these medical things, you know. So there's never a good time in history to have an eating disorder, you know, because um, <laughs> it's true. The older you get, you just can't do all those things with food, you know, like uh, those binges you were talking about. Congratulations on your nine months. Um you know, as you hit around 50-something, that's going to kill you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> really. 
And I remember, you know, eating like that until my stomach was distended, and I never could throw up. I tried. And you just have to make it through to the next morning when it all settles down. And then the big book has this line where, you know, the horror of a few days ago we can't even remember. And it's just like it's just like it never happened. There's no, not even a small recollection of that binge or the the horror of it and the uh, continuing despair. Um, so anyway, um, I put back on the whole. 100 pounds that I had lost and um, I was working at my first job and um, you know my first job was a lot of the other girls that I graduated with very few people were as young as I was you know that graduated with me from uh, nursing school but um, most of the other people went to big medical centers and worked and you know had very exciting careers I worked the 11 to 7 shift at a small community hospital that was one mile from my home. And that just kind of explains who I was. And I lived with my mother and my younger brother the day that I graduated from nursing school. Uh, my dad died when I was three, but my uh, mother kicked out my stepdad and said, good, finally, now you can support me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if it wasn't for this program, I... My guess is I'd probably still be supporting her, you know. Um, let me just tell you, you know, sponsors, um, you know, you may not get the mother you want. I remember doing some writing. I, I just think writing is an invaluable tool. And the only time that I find, the only time I get to grow is when I find out what my part is. And for those of you who are new, the way that all the writing ends is with the simple sentence, where was I at fault? And I have never grown by finding out where you were at fault. <laughs> you know? And I can get a lot of people to do, agree with me on what a jerk you are. You know? <laughs> a lot of people. But that doesn't ultimately help me. You know? And I remember one time crying. I don't even remember what it was. And I said to my sponsor with tears down my I'm just a very dramatic person. Is that too much to ask? Is that too much for a girl to ask from her mother? And she said, Helen, that's not too much to ask from a normal mother. But we here are talking about your mother. <laughs> and yes, I think for your mother, that's a bit too much to ask. And, you know, my whole life is like, oh, God, it shouldn't be this way. You know, I'm just rallying against the world. And there was this old guy. He was old years ago when I came in. He's probably dead 20 years ago. His name was Webster. I don't know. People are still quoting him. But one of the funny, and he used to tell these riddles that had nothing to do with Overeaters Anonymous at all. And people would laugh and, you know. But one of these riddles that he told, I, I, I will always remember it. I've told it over and I've even told it to students. Um, he said, can you tell the difference? Do you know what the difference is between a neurotic and a psychotic? The psychotic thinks 2 plus 2 is 3. The neurotic knows that 2 plus 2 is 4, but he can't stand it! <laughs> and that is me. That is me. I know what the truth is. I know from the instant I walk in a job if it's bad and I stay there because I'm so security driven. And that's why one of our questions asks us in our writing, how does it affect my security? Because it knows us. 
You know, it knows the very core of who we, who we are, that we will barter anything for security. We will barter our self-esteem for a tad of security because we don't want to be left behind. We don't want to be poor. We don't want to be without. And, um, you know, in the end, a lot of that where was I at fault is just um, my complete lack of trust that God knows me and ultimately um, wants what's, what's best for me. Um, so I've been very fortunate, even though um, my mother was not a soft place to land. You know, um, my very first sponsor, and I've had many, um, was that soft place to land. And, you know, here I am taking care of, you know, more than 100 pounds overweight, taking care of my mother, my brother, and, you know, big chaotic household, just like the, uh, the household I grew up in. I tell you, my stepdad was a barber, and I guess not a very good one, <laughs> and a compulsive overeater and a cigarette smoker. And what he did, instead of cutting hair, according to my mom, is across the street from the barbershop, there was a Winchell, so he'd sit there all day and eat donuts and smoke cigarettes with a perpetual cup of coffee. And my mother, when I joined Al-Anon, I realized that my mom was just like the lady that drove around went going to the bars, and she'd go to the Winchells and go, shouldn't you be working? <laughs> you know, so this was, uh, and he definitely was a lesser companion. Like I said, not that there's anything the matter with being a barber, but a barber who doesn't work, that's not good. You know, always smelled like cigarettes and, you know, never really said too much. And at night, because he wasn't a very good barber, and I think he smelled like cigarettes, you know. And I can remember a few times her even reminding him to brush his teeth, okay? <laughs> it's a true story. And so at night, he would go to make a little extra money to cut dead people's hair at the funeral party. <laughs> so this is the kind of house that I was raised in, you know. And she uh, was just like me. She knew he was a barber and not a very good barber, but she wanted the salary of a, of a lawyer. And why can't we have a pool in our backyard? Why can't we have this? Why don't you make the... And it was just this constant berating. And even I, who was like 12, 13 at the time, I'm just like, wow, oh, man, why would you marry this guy? He, why would you marry somebody like that and then try to change him? And even though I was asking those questions, my pattern was to do very much the same thing. You know, why can't you make this amount of money? Why can't you go here? Why don't you like this? You know, just that same sort of insanity. So it was no small wonder, even though neither of my parents drank, although I must admit that drinking would have been a good excuse for their behavior. <laughs> um, neither of my parents drank. It's no small wonder to me that I was attracted to that alcoholic type, to that chaos and everything. Um, anyway, my first sponsor um, told me that... Um, you know, that there, that I should think about leaving the house and having my own life. And, um, you know, we, I, for the first time, got a glimpse of what normal would be. Or, you know, the, the wonderful thing about telling, talking to sponsors isn't so much telling them your food. It's letting them into your life. And um, all those little things, we are very sensitive people. And things that wouldn't bother other people really bother us. Um, <laughs> 
you know, leaf blowers and vacuum cleaners and, you know, <laughs> things that babies crying, dogs bark. I mean, things that other people are just, you know, we're just extremely sensitive. Uh, also, you know, the way that we perceive things is a little askew. We get our uh, feelings hurt uh, very easily. And so I, I think having a sponsor helps you to view the world through a different pair of eyes and gives you alternate solutions that you, uh, and I was very good at taking solutions, I've got to say that. Um, if a sponsor told me to go to therapy or, you know, think about quitting my job or say this or that to my mother, I, you know, I would try it. In fact, um, my mouth, you know, when I, when I was little, my mom used to say, if God came down from heaven, you'd argue with him. And she'd say, someday that mouth of yours is going to get you in trouble. And it, and it has throughout the years. And, you know, it got to the point that my sponsor would actually write me a script. And I so could not trust what I would say to you if I was mad that sometimes I would even have to read it to make sure none of my personality was interjected into that at all. Um, and so I really recommend that for any sort of amends or that it actually <laughs> looks like a script. I found that... Um, to be really helpful. But anyway, um, very young, you know, I started dating. Even after I lost, I would say, the first 40 pounds, the world just started to uh, open up and become a, a brighter place. And I thought about leaving that job, maybe getting on a different shift and did some traveling. Um, just, you know, the world looked suddenly very bright in Overeaters and Eaters Anonymous, things that I wouldn't even thought that I could have. That's why, let me tell you, any... Anything I have now is a gift of this program, and it far exceeds um, what I thought I would end up with in this world. And so everything to me seems like it's great, you know, um, especially all the sport things that I did when I was younger, you know, learning to ski and windsurf and, you know, all those things. There, there's no way. I, I think I probably would have ended up, things that I had such an early start at, grave obesity, that I would have, would have ended up being one of these people that were uh, perhaps three, four hundred pounds, you know. And my weight has varied all, you know. I've never uh, reached close to my top weight, even when I was pregnant, you know. I had um, my first child, at, my only child, at 40. Um, but um, anyway, I don't want to talk about that. Um, I, just, I want to talk about the steps and, uh, you know, the powerlessness and, um, you know, having a sponsor and um, just really, really the willingness. You know, I, uh, the more meetings that I went to early on, I went to three, four meetings a week. I was single. I didn't have anything else to do. And um, like I said, myself and my best friend started to travel. And one of the places that we traveled to, you have to remember this, 20 years ago was uh, Jamaica and we liked it so much we decided to live there. Okay, this is two girls, okay? <laughs> two very sheltered girls who are at the time living at home with their parents. Neither one of us had even had an apartment on the other side of town. Our first move from our parents' home, okay, was to live in Port Antonio, not even a tourist town, really, you know. It was so remote, the cruise ships didn't even stop there. A few Canadians would <laughs> come down there. Anyway, we, um, we had this little three-bedroom house that we rented. and We stayed there a full six months. 
sold all our earthly possessions. And um, my mom was crying at the airport and saying, I hope you're satisfied. Me and your brother are going to be out in the street when you come back, right? (laughs) She had never worked, my mom. And she was a little younger than I am now, okay, when this all happened. Do you know I was gone from the country six weeks? She got a job. And she worked at that job until she was 72 years old. Full time. And that really drives home a point for me, is that I should not do for others what they can do for themselves. Um, Because ultimately they resent you for it. You know, ultimately they know they should be doing it for themselves. And that was the first of very valuable lessons. And, um, you know, my... uh, do, Do we have that little For Today book here? That little white one? Well, when you go home, you've got to read September 6th. And uh, for me, that, that one September 6th in that, in that little book sums up my uh, whole experience in the program. It says, like, um, it's the end. I had such hopes. What happened? Uh, you know, and it talks about dealing with disappointment and having things shift and change as they do in this world, you know, um, jobs and boyfriends and it says I had such hopes and it said um, when one door of happiness closes another one opens but so often times we looked at the closed door we fail to see what's opening up before us and we're only bemoaning what we thought we wanted anyway it wasn't truly what we wanted because we have all these fantasies about what we think we want but the truth be told you know Many years on the, down the line, you can say to yourself, wow, I really didn't want that, you know. Um, and that's what it's been to me, a series of letting goes. And I am very security-based. Like I said, that's one of the things that we write about. And I don't like things to change, and they must. And when I feel that shift, and oftentimes the shift to me feels like hunger, and most of my eating was to quiet that voice, the voice that says, Helen, it's time to shift. It's, your, it's time for a change. And it's like, oh, no, I'm not ready for that kind of a change, you know, whether it's, you know, like I said, a new home, a divorce, a job, a shift in friendships, the dynamics of your own birth family. Uh, all these things um, throughout the years have not remained the same. Um, in fact, I think probably the last four years have really been the best. It's There hasn't been a lot of shifting going on. But I know this too shall pass, you know. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the food. I want to say, I was just, the last two months I've just uh, really dreaded speaking at this meeting because of this, um, the weight gain over the last year. This is, in Overeaters Anonymous, the whole 30 years, I've never weighed a pound more than I weigh now. This is the absolute. And and it seems like, to me, one of the best times of my life, you know. Everything has been very smooth, you know. And I think therein lies some of the problems with my um, complacency, you know. Wanting to have that normal life that I think I deserve because I put in a lot of time, you know, especially on a cold night to sit back at the home and, you know, not get in the car and drive to Brentwood, you know. um, I've just been complacent. I haven't gone to as many meetings. I haven't, you know, I call call somebody almost every day or somebody calls me. But um, 
I haven't been willing to take, and I think there's different levels of compulsive overeaters because I've been in here many years and watched a lot of people. And I think it's like a disease like diabetes. Like some people have it really bad and they have to take insulin. And then some people, they can get by with just the diet control. I think being a compulsive overeater is like that. And I think I'm like one of the really bad ones that needs like a, a whole team of people working on me, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exercise coach and, um, you know, a food sponsor and, you know, a spiritual sponsor. And I need to, you know, have people calling me and, you know, working on my steps every day. Um, the big book says something about um, resentment is our number one offender. And what I used to do with my resentments is used to tackle them down either until I was bloody or, the, you know, the other person was bloody. Um, I could just ne- never let go. I should have been a lawyer because I tell you, I hate any sort of injustice. I remember early on me saying to my sponsor, it's not fair. And she said, Helen, the fair is in Pomona. So I got a different sponsor. And I said the same thing. I forget what was happening. It's not fair. And she said, Helen, it's not fair is the cry of the loser. I thought, when am I going to get a nice sponsor? You know, um, and, you know, early on, I remember one of my very first spiritual experiences. This is going to sound funny to you, but, um, you know, I worked this 11 to 7 shift at this small community hospital. And I, uh, you know, just like a lot of new nurses, really thought I was all that. And, you know, the longer you move along, the, the less you know and the more you realize you don't know. But... Um, they told us that they were going to have to let go of one of the housekeepers and that the nurses, the RNs, would have to empty the trash cans. So I just went on and on. I didn't go to school to empty trash cans. This is who I was back then, right? I called my sponsor. It's not fair that I'm going to have to empty the trash cans. And they should hire more people, and I've got better things to do. And she lets me just go on, and she goes, Helen, wouldn't it just be easier to empty the trash cans? <laughs> and I never wanted what was easier. I wanted what was fair. I know my rights. And that was, I mean, that just sums up who I was. I know, you know, I know what's right, and that's what I'm going to have, what's right. And sometimes getting what's right or what's fair will kill me. Not to mention, it makes me very hungry. Lots of things make me hungry. (laughs) Even being tired makes me hungry. When I am tired, I feel like I'm hungry. And if I feel like I'm really tired, that a little food would pick me up. And it just really has the opposite effect, truly. Um, So... um, Throughout the years, I just want to tell you about, um, you know, my history of abstinence and relapse in this program. The first nine years, I kept off um, probably 80 pounds and looked very good. And you would have never known, I never took a candle the first nine years, that I had these binge diet cycles. And this is what would happen. I would diet because back then it was three meals a day, nothing in between, no wheat. Um, And so I would hang on as long as I could. And, of course, you lose weight when you're uh, having three moderate meals a day with nothing in between. And then I would eat something, didn't matter what it was, something innocuous, and the thought would occur to me, what difference does it make? I've just really blown it. And that one little mistake was licensed to binge until I dropped. 
And I did that in Overeaters Anonymous over and over and over again. And then somebody, after nine years, <laughs> said to me, why don't you just not try to do that anymore? Because that's what everybody's doing, three meals a day with nothing in between. No refined flours, no sugars. And she said, well, you're, you don't really know that everybody's doing that. I mean, they may say they're doing that, but why don't you just do what you do, write it down, call it, be honest about it. And that was the first year I didn't have a binge. And I thought I would go to my grave binging, dieting, binging. I never could purge, but I could diet pretty well. And it was just amazing after nine years of being in the program to get a candle. And um, that abstinence lasted 12 and a half years without a binge, relatively the same weight within 10 pounds, I would say. And I met the man of my dreams. I've been married three times, by the way. Um, this was my second one. The first one, um, you know, just lasted a year. He was the alcoholic. He was my Al-Anon qualifier. Just show you how nutty that, that relationship was when I was young. Um, within two weeks of moving him, I was, two weeks of meeting him, I was jumping out of moving cars to show him a lesson. <laughs> and that's just such a typical Al-Anon thing to do. You say something I don't like, I'm going to jump out of your car. <laughs> you know? uh, well, so that didn't last, obviously. Um, but then, you know, I, mar I uh, met this person that was non-alcoholic, self-supporting through his own contributions. I liked that. And, you know, seemed pretty normal. And I was in therapy at the time. And, um, you know, still, you know, uh, my husband, my second husband is a good guy, I, I really think. And... Uh, and I really don't know what went wrong, other than we had a kid and we were both old. I was 40, no kids before this child, and uh, he was 49. And he had been a bachelor until he was 44 and didn't really want to get married, kind of had some pressure from the folks to get married. And, <clears throat> and I think that, I don't know, I think that having this child tripped off something very Freudian and uh, you know he just constantly criticized my parenting and uh, we have very different parenting styles and we went to parenting classes I took all the advice of my sponsor and you know he kind of went through a midlife thing and I thought gosh the last thing I want to do you know I've got a five-year-old child I'm no youngster I'll never have another house again you know is split up this money and move on. I do not want it, but I was absolutely miserable and I broke 12 and a half years of abstinence. Not to say that I can blame that on him, but um, there was a lot I didn't say because I didn't want to make him feel uncomfortable. And I ate all those things I never said because I was uh, not scared of him, um, scared of the rejection. Like I said, I'm just very security-based. You know, I'm a very security-based person. And so, you know, when my daughter was five, I was 45, 
I moved out of the house with nothing but, even the sofa couldn't fit out the damn door. I was only able to take the cushions. (laughs) And he said, you know, you want to leave? Leave. You know, I'm not selling the house. I'm not, you know. And so I had to leave me and my daughter in a one-bedroom apartment on the corner of Pacific Coast Highway in Clark. Big, busy uh, intersection, you know. And um, just probably, you know, the saddest point in my life. You know, I was trying to get my abstinence back. I'm in this apartment after living in a house, um, still trying to pay for the house so he can live in it. And, you know, he's, we're both working. We're just trying to um, scramble. And in my fantasy, I thought he would change and would want me back. Let me tell you, when I moved out, I've never seen a man happier. He looked like this piece washed over <laughs> You know, and I thought when I left, I was just, you know, very magical kind of arrogance thinking, let me tell you, every job I left, I thought they would call me up and say, please, Helen, reconsider. Do you know that hasn't happened once? (laughs) Every time I've turned in a resignation, they've just taken it. I always want to show people a lesson. I'll show him. I'm going to leave. The phone never rang. Never came over. Never asked to, you know, never said I'll change. Nothing, you know. Finally, six months passed and I thought, wow, I guess this isn't meant to be. This is not going to change. This perpetual, uh, what I consider to be abuse of my parenting, you know. I mean, just constant. And, you know, this was my trigger area because I always thought in my head I wouldn't make a good parent because I didn't have a very good role model, you know. Um, And it was just this constant, depressing, just very oppressive. And, um, and, you know, he was just over the top with this kid. And I've seen women do this. They just ignore everything else, and they're like all about this kid. And he carried this child until she was four. She never walked. It was just bizarre. And... um, Anyway, so I said, you know, I'm going to take her with me. And so she, you know, she was in this little apartment. All her little toys were in one little closet. And somehow or another, we made it through those two years. And um, I want to say, you know, something for both myself and Jeff and this program is we ended a 10-year marriage without $1 of credit card debt. And we did not use a lawyer. And... um, We went to one of these people called an arbitrator. We had an adult discussion. And they tell you something very interesting about divorce. They say, um, you know, you live in California. Things shake out how they shake out. You can fight and yell and scream and each get lawyers and be really mean and nasty. But this is the way the judge is going to see it. And we believed her. (laughs) You know, and both of us saved tons of money. I thought, he wants something? Who cares? Let him have it. You know, what difference? And nothing could be worse than living in that little apartment, right? Oh, my God, the water didn't even run. It still had fuse boxes. I'd never changed a fuse in my life. It was just the whole two years felt like I was in exile or, you know, being punished for something. It was just absolutely terrible. Um, And I had to work two jobs because I thought, well, there's going to be someday I'm going to 
want to buy another house, but I don't really have the income to stretch it. Well, after those two years were up, um, Kelly and I were able to find a house for $309,000, which sounds like a lot, but that, you know, back then. And um, that was this February before years, you know. Um, I got married to a wonderful man. Uh, this is, we're going to come up on our three-year anniversary. And um, just somebody I met, normal guy, also a nurse, and uh, works with the homeless. Just a real sweet guy. He's got an adult child. Um, it's been a little bit challenging. Did a lot of writing. And um, I just want to tell you about uh, the writing, for, for those of you who haven't done it. I still do 10 steps very much. If I get either fearful or angry, and that anger lasts for more than 24 hours, I, you know, and I'll call anybody to read it. It doesn't have to be my sponsor. Like, I'll be like, hi, do you remember me? I met you at this meeting. I'm tall. I've got blonde hair. I've got something to read to you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it starts out, you know, what the other person did, the really bad person or place or thing. And then it goes on to how that affected my security, my self-esteem, my ambitions, and my pocketbook. And then it talks about where I have been selfish, self-seeking, fearful, or dishonest. And then it ends with the same sentence, where am I at fault? And the big book gives you a little clue, <laughs> gives most of us a little clue where we could be at fall. And it tells this wonderful little story about trying to arrange the players and if only they would stay put. And that's, you know, usually where I'm at fault, either for trying to arrange the players, for being selfish or self-seeking, for being dishonest, or, you know, maybe just for having a twisted perception. But then it also addresses the times maybe you're not at fault. And it lets you off the hook a little with this one sentence that says, we often asked ourselves how we had placed ourselves in a position to be hurt. And that was my pattern too. I could see a lot of people over here that saying, Helen, come over here. We want to be your friend. We really like you. And this one lady in the back doesn't want to be my friend or doesn't want to know me and she walks away with from me when I'm trying to talk to her and then I'm over here asking her, do you know why she doesn't like me? <laughs> you know, I want to gravitate to that one person that's going to give me difficult or struggle or even bosses and, you know, um, and I haven't done that. You know, I tell you, I have a boss, this is going to be hard to believe too, um, that tells me, I would say on a weekly basis how much she appreciates me and I've had this this is the only job I've had more than two years, by the way. And I have had this job 12 years. I go to the same place and work the same job and do the same thing 12 years, and I am appreciated. I would rather get less money and feel appreciated. Mm. It's something that's important to me, whether that's right or wrong. Um, I don't know. But um, I want to be comfortable in my own skin. I want to play the role that God has assigned, whatever that role is. I'm willing to listen to you um, when you tell me what you think the role is. And um, I'm willing to suit up and show up and go to meetings no matter, you know, what my weight. Uh, this particular time I've uh, been abstaining eight and a half years, haven't had a binge in eight and a half years. 
Um, but my food has been particularly difficult since I've been married, and I've been married almost three years. And there's a lot of things that I want to do with my daughter and my husband, and I just can't, I can't do all those things because I'm not free to do them because the inconvenient truth is I have an eating disorder that wants to kill me, has tried on several occasions, and I've seen many people die. We um, took care of this guy for three years, came in on his 30th birthday, 700 pounds, got in bed at the hospital. No matter how they tried at this hospital, they could not get rid of them. They even tried to buy a bed to send him with the special fat bed. Nobody would take him. He laid there three years and died on his 33rd birthday. And every day I saw that guy. Not every day, probably three days a week. You know? And uh, it just reminds me, we all have that same disease, you know? And um, God has given me a wonderful life with wonderful things in it. So thank you all for being here and keep doing that.